Inside the halls of American hospitals, millions of people find comfort, healing, and support. But for many doctors and nurses, this couldn't be further from the truth. This podcast will dive into the shadows of American healthcare to investigate and uncover the abuse, control, and political power plays that leave the very people responsible for our nation's health broken and battered. We're sharing stories of professionals in medicine that have experienced horrendous treatment at the hands of a broken system that does nothing to stop the trauma. As the Association of American Medical Colleges states, long before the Me Too movement, women in medicine have instinctively banded together to counter a culture that too often tolerated harassment. From systemic trauma to abusive power to the unspoken rules of cover-ups and corruption, Mandy Irby and Phoebe will take you to the darkest corners of healthcare in America so you can have an inside look at bringing humanity back to medicine. Sensitive content warning. This podcast will share details of triggering subjects such as sexual assault and workplace violence. So if you aren't in a space to listen, respect your mental health and tune in again at another time. Welcome back to the Pulse Check Podcast. I am Mandy and I'm here with a guest. He he is off today, off doing on-call doula work. So my guest today is Nurse Adrian. Hey Adrian, how are you? Hi, how are you, Mandy? Thanks for having me on. I have so many questions. So I thought we would just hit record and dive right in. You are a board certified patient advocate. And you started to explain what's going on with that work, but I wanted to share with the audience, what is a board-certified patient advocate and how do you use that with your nursing license? Sure. Yeah. Private patient advocacy is a relatively new field. Not a lot of folks know about it. There aren't a lot of us around. I don't even actually know the numbers. I was part of, I think, the third or second group that tested through for the credential with a patient advocacy certification board. And if you rearrange the numbers or the letters, that's my credential, board certified patient advocate. And what that basically means is it's very broad. So basically means that we are somebody that a family or a client, an individual would contact if they need additional support through the healthcare system. We don't give advice. We don't do medical reviews. Although I do have a partner that I work with, an NP who can do medical reviews if somebody wants to have their chart reviewed. But in essence, we're there to support people to navigate the health system, which when I did this in 2019, this was before COVID, I couldn't have even imagined the kind of needs there would be in healthcare and for different groups in in the healthcare paradigm in seeking care and then how that would change and be evolving with the kind of shortages and deficits we're having right now in in the healthcare system. Uh So for example, something that I might do is first off, I'd meet with a client, you know, I'd get a picture, a snapshot of what is their concern? What do they need the help most help with? Could just be, Hey, I'm have so much anxiety when I go to the doctor or my provider, I can't remember anything. And so what I do is I do everything remotely unless somebody just happens to live really close to me and hires me, but it allows me a greater latitude to reach people. So I come with people with their iPad or their phone on FaceTime and can be there with them. If they really want somebody who's going to be there with them 
in person, then I will refer them to somebody who does that kind of service. So not all patient advocates are nurses either. And I didn't realize that until I got more involved in Mm -hmm. the profession. Many people come out of the billing world, which is Mm -hmm. not my wheelhouse per se. But again, I have partners who do medical billing because that's a whole other arena of patient advocacy. So the other part is family dynamics. People are living farther away from their loved ones. If we just look at aging population, for example, we don't include anybody that's younger, under 65. We look at that over 65, we've got 46 million people in America. Life expectancy has now gone down for the first time since 1996, two years in a row. However, we're still looking at people that are not living near their parents, not living near their grandparents. Perhaps they are the one designated by default or directly to be the caregiver or the decision maker, they may be in Dubai. They Mm -hmm. may be in the military and deployed. They may be an executive somewhere very far away or have a schedule where it doesn't allow them to be participating even remotely in Mm -hmm. the care or decision-making in that for their family or whoever they're designated for. So that's another area where I come in is, Hey, Oh, you're a Colonel or general in the military. And you know, you're in Africa, you're in Spain, or you just live across country or you're the CEO of a company. You're in the C-suite. That's an area where people really need help because they don't have that immediate family And the other component that I realized quickly after starting this was not everybody who is that designated person gets along really well with that person that they're going to be making decisions for. Mm -hmm. And that can be a barrier. So they may be willing to make the decision, the final call. However, they may not be as interested or eager to be actually involved with that individual. So that's another area where a patient advocate, a private patient advocate can be hired and brought in and help navigate that relationship a little bit and navigate the care for that individual and basically be a mediator, mediate a mediator between family members or individuals. There could also be conflicts. I mean, as nurses, we've often seen, I don't think there's any of us as nurses who've worked in hospitals who have not been in the midst of conflict with families and a patient and disagreements. And that caused delays in care ultimately, Mm -hmm. and perhaps not the best decisions made. Yeah. It's a high stress time. A lot is on the line and a lot of folks don't know, don't have a background. They don't know even nurses in, in my field, nurses going in, having babies feel out of sorts, right? They say, I know a particular part of healthcare. I don't know this part. I don't know what to expect, or I don't know if I'm getting the right information or I'm getting all of the information, it's really hard to navigate, even for folks who have a history and background in healthcare. Right. And most of us in healthcare can call somebody, maybe we know we work with, you know, I don't do oncology. I don't do pediatrics. That's not my wheelhouse. So, but I know people can, who know that, but if you're not a nurse and you're not in healthcare, who are you going to call? Really, You're looking up on Google, right? That's what people do. They're looking information up. Maybe they find an advocacy organization. There are many for certain diseases. However, many people are just a caregiver for somebody. And then there's caregiver burnout people deal with. 
you know, they're doing the physical caregiving and they're just not wanting to do that emotional, mental component of the caregiving of having to then, oh, I've got to decipher all of this information and maybe decision fatigue sets in. That's a big part, I would say, of what I do is decision support. You are on, you are like on a call in appointments and what does that look like for you? Are you taking notes? Are you looking things up? Yes. So in the, in the assessment with the client, there's an evaluation that I do of, well, what is your biggest concern? It may be, well, I like my doctor, but they talk so fast. Everything's happening so quickly. They're in and out. Then I'm dealing with a medical staff person that maybe they're not explaining things. So it's really identifying what is the concern of the client? You know, is it a literacy issue? Is it a language barrier? Is it that they feel because of maybe they don't like their provider? Maybe they need a new provider. People are experiencing discrimination in healthcare also, right? There is a huge amount of discrimination reported in various groups in healthcare. So it may be something like me just calling that office and asking them, what is your non-discrimination policy? And how are you complying with the Affordable Care Act? Because there's been a recent ruling a lot of people aren't aware of that sexual orientation is now included in the non-discrimination clause of the Affordable Care Act. And that has been something that, that was actually one of the very first things that went into effect in the Affordable Care Act in 2010. But the non-discrimination on sexual orientation is more of a recent ruling and they are now enforcing that. However, people are still, there's, I think, somewhere around 18% of LGBTQ individuals report feeling discriminated against, having care actually refused to them, other barriers, having their partners not recognized. And, you know, I live in a state that doesn't necessarily recognize that. You are a same-sex couple. You literally have to set up an LLC to have all of those protections. Yeah, I just looked into that. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, California is great. It was great being in California, but now I'm in a different state. And yeah, so that's more what it looks like. And when providers hear, hey, I'm a nurse. And again, not all board certified patient advocates are nurses, but when they find out I'm a nurse, I introduce myself. It's non-adversarial. It's like, hey, I'm a partner here with you to make sure that this individual gets the best care possible and that they have the best outcome and are able to make decisions for themselves with the full picture. And the provider may be as frustrated they may say, you know, hey, this person's non-compliant because we all know this chronic illnesses and, and how they arise is often out of non-compliance. And so they may say, hey, can you help educate this person on diabetes, on smoking, on diet, on exercise, whatever it may be. Or, And that may just mean me going back to the individual, maybe the family and saying, hey, can you take this person out for a walk a couple times a week? Mm-hmm. Who's buying the food? The food choices being made. Who's cooking? Do you need a food service? So, so it's a little bit of case management in there as well, mm-hmm. but it's all centered around ensuring that this person gets the best care and is making decisions for themselves or the person who's making those decisions is making them with the most information and the best information they can have. This makes my nurse heart so happy. Two things. One, what you just said, like we ultimately, that is what we want. We want everyone that we encounter, our family, our clients, our patients to have the most information, to understand all of their options, all of the information presented, make their best choice for them because they're coming with their own baggage, their own story, their own history, their own wishes that none of us 
truly understand and they feel confident in that choice, right? That's the hard part too. And you said remote. And I know I'm loving working remotely. You know, some days are easier than others. I have friends also who are like, oh, I'm dying. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And they want to know about nursing options or ways to be a nurse remotely, Mm -hmm. or at least not at the bedside. It's a great opportunity. Yeah. Are you, I want to back up half a step. Are you talking to, in that example that you just gave, was that a time where maybe you would have called the office to get a little more information? Are you talking to providers without the patient? So we would typically not speak with yeah. the provider unless it was just to set up an appointment or to clarify something. If there was some clarification needed that, you know, about a medication, oh, are sure. they still going to supposed to take this pill or where do you want them to get an x-ray or an MRI? Or did you right. put in, did you put in for that referral? Things like that. Right. So, okay. That makes uh, sense. Some advocates will do, you know, the appointment setting. Again, it really varies. I know some advocates who work very hands-on setting up ME for patients, durable medical equipment. They're very hands-on. Others, again, work mostly in the billing sphere where somebody is going to have a lot of bills coming through and really need help navigating that. So it really depends on the situation. If it's just one of the things when we talk about remote, I just, I was out of the country for a little bit. And I had the opportunity to explore doing this in another country with expats. So again, there's a high need for families to have this service, especially families of, I would say, greater wealth. There is a financial component to this that is undeniable. At some point, my dream is create a nonprofit and be able to have some kind of type of foundation to offer broader services. But what I will be offering are, you know, classes on demand and free videos and, and tips on how to navigate the healthcare system. But yeah, it is private pay. So that was actually, I was approached about that by a few people when they found out what I did. And it's not something that's really even unique to the United States. I mean, you could do this with a family in France. If you speak different languages, that's a huge benefit because healthcare is, it's universal as far as the application for the most part of healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. And the need, the need to have someone, oh my gosh, I can see so much benefit to this. The need to just have someone hear what you hear and then discuss, like, did I understand that right? Well, I came up with another idea later. I want to review that option. Do you think that's an option? And not be alone in that process of making those decisions, receiving the information. And there's so many decisions. It's not just make a decision about healthcare. It's make a decision about where to get healthcare. Are there other, should I be including, you know, a naturopath? Should I be including physical therapy with this? What are we missing? And I just am going through a very new transition into chronic illness. Is that how you say it? Hello. I now have a chronic illness that's new. And I just have a new different perspective on it. I've always, I've always wanted every single patient that I've ever seen and known to have an advocate with them at all times. 
because I think that's the safest way to navigate healthcare. It's the safest way to navigate pregnancy. It's a vulnerable time. It's taken advantage of, and there's abuse. Abuse abounds. After our discussion on this, right before we recorded, I understand your knowledge of abuse is significant inside and around healthcare in working with policy, nurses, unions, things like that. And so you know the risks of not having an advocate with you and how oh, I, how a complicated situation, anything, I feel like pregnancy and birth is complicated, even though it's pretty like straightforward, physiologic, usually there's nothing wrong or there's a few things that could go wrong, but a complicated situation with a lot of moving parts, how could folks navigate without an advocate? <laughs> Yeah. And I would say from my own just experience within a union and working for a large healthcare union of nurses is that some of the most horrifying stories I've ever heard were out of, from L&D nurses, you know, because the stakes okay, are Okay. Well, high. that, that tracks. Stakes That's validating. High. Thank you. The, the stakes are high. It's a critical yeah. care environment. There's a lot of dynamics going on. There's a lot of situations where people are not getting prenatal care You've got younger people, you know, you have a lot of different circumstances. There's a threat <laughs> of litigation that is just, it's just off fog. It is, it is. And, and the staffing, I mean, the staffing of these units has diminished from the support staffing, the secretaries, the techs, the scrub techs, all of that. And when you then couple that with maybe a charge nurse from NICU who has to then run over to the high risk birth in L&D, but also cover their unit. And I mean, there's this Rochambeau that hospitals do between NICUs, postpartum and labor and delivery yeah. that the public is not aware of that I have seen universally occur. And even in California where there are staffing laws, however, it is a complete, I don't even have the word for it, but it's something that the public is not aware of hosp- because hospitals do not have to disclose their staffing. They don't have to disclose, wow. oh, we only have one nurse in the ER. We only have five, yeah. you know, two nurses, but we're going to let 60 patients in, but come, but we're open. We've got this open sign. I just heard of a, it's this dynamic on TikTok, and you mentioned it. And I just saw your profile. I cannot wait to dive into that. The dynamic on TikTok where we can talk to each other. Patients are talking to nurses or, you know, any healthcare professional that's inside. It can be a tech doctor or surgeon. And they're like, we thought the open sign was on and you could take us in. And everyone on the inside is like, we would really like the open sign to not be on right now. This is not a safe situation. And there's that barrier. No one knows that we're speaking those two different things. You don't know unless you're on the inside that there's only one sterile processing tech and there should be five. So really how are instruments from surgery and OB and procedures getting sterilized? How are they being procured? You don't know there's only one pharmacist for two or three hospitals that hasn't had a break in five years. You don't, you know, you don't know that, you know, the staff have just been, the the support staff and nursing staff have been decimated. And, you know, again, we, we brought in lean technology, the lean, this lean process, you know, into healthcare. Just in time. Right. You didn't die just in time. So we took three more patients. Like that's how it feels. Right, right. And I've had this discussion with other nurses about, especially new nurses about when patients pass, how there's nothing. It's like, well, clean the room and here comes the next patient. And so 
you you need that full attention of that nurse and that staff. But this may have been that new nurse's first code or the first time they've lost a patient. Mm-hmm. And they may not even know how they are going to react or respond. And, you know, I've been in those situations as charge nurse where I'm like, thank goodness I have a charge and, and I could give this person a little reprieve, but you know, basically it's like, okay, you got 15 minutes and it's not a reprieve. Just, just go to the private bathroom because there's no other private spot in the entire, ba- right. in the entire hospital. That's another thing people don't understand is right. in the hospital environment, there is zero privacy unless you find a closet that you can just go stand in for five minutes and decompress. It is just the constant onslaught of pressure and, and critical thinking and tasks and management of patients that's happening with fewer and fewer resources. Yeah. You really get it. And it sounds and feels worse and better at the same time to hear you say all that. Yeah. It's, I mean, I can say it does take a lot for me not to get cynical. And I think perhaps people may believe I'm cynical if they work with me in the union (laughs) capacity. However, you know, I worked on a unit. We had 26 managers in 12 years. Oh, oh, that's intense. And so that takes a level of cohesiveness of staff to hold a unit together, but it also created a dynamic where it was very difficult for a manager to come in because it's like being foster kids. Yeah. But the kids are running the show. Like, the kids are running the show, right? I mean, we just needed somebody to sign up our pay, payroll and we did all the ordering. We did everything. We did the throughput. We basically ran our own show and it, you know, that and watching managers just crumble. And, you know, that's a whole other topic, of course, middle management mm-hmm. and healthcare, most thankless job there is, but it's, you know, so out of that, I'm just so lucky that I had a great education as a nurse and a great team that I was able to work with in a union hospital that made all the difference so that I could, I could be the nurse I wanted to be. I was able to be the nurse I wanted to be. And at the point I was no longer able to do that, I left. At the point I felt that I was no longer able to provide the care I wanted to provide and have the space to think critically about my patient needs and implement that care that was a turning point for me. And I believe that's the case for many people for whatever Mm -hmm. reasons it may be. Yeah. I think that's really good for nurses to hear and healthcare staff to hear because I hear that from them all the time. I know that I could be great. I know what my patients need. There's so many barriers to getting that to them. And I really, I'm excited about this, about your business, about trusted guardian patient advocates. I'm excited about that whole side of helping patients, but Mm -hmm. not working for a union or the hospital or a healthcare system and doing it. Yeah. I think a lot of nurses, right. We know a lot of nurses and other people in healthcare are looking for other avenues. Some of the advocates that I work with are pharmacy techs, they're respiratory therapists, the radiology techs. They have some background in healthcare. Again, some don't. They come out of the billing world or maybe coding. Luckily, I'm a certified coder as well. I'm kind of a jack of all trades with my experience. And to that, I took every opportunity I ever had to continue learning Mm -hmm. as a nurse because it it is important to understand how the money works Mm -hmm. in healthcare, how the billing process does work. We're often very divorced from that and don't really understand all of that. But it it is very important either as a nurse, how we practice and also 
as a potential patient or a caregiver of somebody else. No, well, if you if you prescribe that medication, this is going to be $3,000 a month. Maybe you can think about this other medication. And I was able to do that a few times. But there are so many options out there for nurses. It is really important to not allow yourself to get into the place where you're so low or feel so depleted. And I was there, I know, and that you just feel defeated as a human being. We talked about doing, we did resiliency courses and and during the pandemic, I provided Mm -hmm. curriculum for that and taught courses to the members. And then that kind of led to moral injury, learning about that. And then you get into trauma response. I've learned so much about trauma response as a result of the last couple of years. I could never have imagined. I mean, there's so many triggering events that have happened for individuals. And yet nurses, healthcare workers have continued to show up, continue to do their job, do their best and keep pushing themselves. And that's just something that we do, whether Mm -hmm. it's the personality type drawn to nursing. I'm not sure as a union organizer, that was a part of the pep talk I would give nurses that I never had to give housekeepers. I never had to give dietary workers. They knew they were screwed. Nurses, on the other hand, you know, it would be this cognitive dissonance based on their history of cognitive dissonance from past trauma throughout their lives. And it was very interesting. It is so interesting. You got to crank up your deserving meter. You got to just, I would say, just imagine your life and what you deserve is this meter and just crank it up and know that it's going to be an uphill battle against your inner voice that's saying, suck it up. This is all you deserve. This is as good as it's going to get. And this is just the way it is. My opinion is the forever experience of being in an abusive relationship. Right. And so it's like, it taught us that it taught us, what do you expect? It would get better. Do you expect it to be better? Did you expect this to be easy? Did you expect this to be fun? Mm -hmm. And then that whole, like you said, a patient dies and everyone around you is like, well, did you take it? You know, did you go to the morgue or did you not go to the morgue? And you're like, literally a, a soul has left the room and I am here and my soul is still next to this body and I am processing. And everyone's like, mm-hmm. do you need more gloves? Or like, what's the issue? Like, do you not have what you need? And you're like, I'm mm-hmm. in crazy town. And so it's mm-hmm. compiles on this like abuse of, I feel a little gaslit, but no one else seems to realize it. So maybe this is normal. And then you scoot over to this bad side of normal and you think it's normal and you move over, 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 over. And like you said, you can't even see where you're at anymore because it's a cycle of abuse that continues over and over and over and over. Yeah. I was introduced to the concept of empathetic witness. Blew my mind and really changed my life a couple of years ago through one of your past guests. And that concept of having an empathetic witness is so key to have somebody acknowledge and say, gosh, I am so sorry. Are you okay? And I had this, these encounters with nurses in the last couple of years where when I'm able to be face-to-face with nurses or any health, anybody in healthcare really mm-hmm. to say, are you okay? How are you? I'm really sorry you went through that. And be honest, really be, you know, this yeah. is a genuine place, right? And 
just people crumble because I was going to say, what do they do? They can't even breathe. They just crumble. I mean, I've hugged so many sobbing nurses that just need to hear that. It's like, where can we soften? And to your point about this abusive codependent relationship that we then transition to as nurses. Well, and it gets reinforced in nursing school, right? Because who's the predator in nursing school, right? The professors, the, I went when I, and just aside, my clinical experience was like boot camp for two years. For the most part, Mm -hmm. I got a great education for my school. I recall my very first week of clinical looking down the hallway and seeing two of my cohorts on the ground slumped on the wall crying and the teacher in our face saying, I can get you out for anything. I can kick you out for anything. If we don't want you here, we can get you out in clinical. And that's the fact, right? We all know that. That's the dirty secret of nursing school. They'll get you out in clinical if they don't like you. And I had discrimination for being a lesbian. And in my nursing school, even in California, there was racism. There was there was a lot of bias happening. And so there's that. We go from that to zero self-advocacy education in nursing school. We've just now seen in California and Michigan introduction of regulations, new requirements for nursing schools to include bias training in Mm -hmm. the actual curriculum, which is great. But again, there's just, there's these really kind of written in stone paradigms, but then you get in the hospital, right? And now we're in a profession that has the highest rate of non-fatal injuries of any Mm -hmm. profession. Right. And then what happens when you get injured? You go to employee health, your manager, they have you fill out a form. And what do they ask you? What could you have done differently? What did you do? Yeah. What did you do? Tell us how you contributed to this and what would you do differently? I, at one point, almost set that paper on fire in employee health. If I mean, I became a nurse at 39. I had never encountered that kind of question in an employment environment. And I thought the audacity to ask me what could I have done differently? Well, let's see. I don't know. I would have not got a job here. That's what I would (laughs) write. And I had coached everybody I worked with, write that down. I would have just got a job somewhere else. I would have actually got a career not being a nurse. Not being here. How does this even help? Because now you have like basically institutionalized gaslighting. I distinctly remember the first time, the very first time I had a physician screaming in my face. And I was getting cord gases and I put the needle right through the cord, right into my finger. And I had someone screaming and it was dark and I was not prioritizing like bitches back up, bitches back up. I've got a cord. I got to get a gas. It's going to clot. And I have a needle and never again was the situation like that. But the form said, well, were you wearing a shield? I'm like, this was like 2010. There's no shields. We don't have shields. A shield have helped that situation. That's dangerous, very dangerous situation. And it was so gaslighty. It was like, well, were you wearing, yes, I was wearing gloves. Gloves don't, it's not chain mail. It's gloves. It's not going to protect me from a what? needle going through a blood into my own hand. I just remember that like flush of people like, well, what'd you do? What could you have done differently? And they were wearing me down so that I didn't say your situation caused my harm and you need to fix it. 
because we can just gaslight you away to distraction from the actual issue and the source of the the incredible speed, the pace that you're working, the workload, having physicians yell at you, having that pressure, having maybe physicians who are newer, not having a space that's safe, not having enough staff to cover my other responsibilities. So I could do this for the three and a half minutes that it takes in Mm -hmm. a safe, well-lit, clean environment. There's like people running back and forth. It was a systems issue. Right. But all of the questions were directed at what was I doing wrong? And the mismatch of policy, right? Like, were you wearing a shield? What does that have to do with it? I mean, they could buy puncture proof gloves, right? But they choose not to. Right. And that goes back, you know, on the issue of needles, right? I mean, that goes back to the unions. That goes back 30 years in California, how we got safe needles. I was, you know, somewhat involved in that campaign coming out of the AIDS crisis prior to working for a union. But this was a time when nurses were getting AIDS, they were getting hepatitis and the hospitals were saying, prove it, prove it. You got it through us and just letting people die, letting workers die. And safe needles came out of California, came out of unions, and then it became nationwide. But I remember learning that in universal precautions. We didn't have it before, before HIV and AIDS. We learned about it at school, which meant we knew the hospital gave us COVID the minute it happened. And that was a key component for a credit to California and to the governor is under OSHA, it was made preemptive. I can't remember the exact term, but basically it was assumed that in a worker's comp case, that if you have COVID, you got it at work. You were a nurse. If you were a nurse, that's a huge difference. So there was no argument about it. You're covered. You know, that is the same for certain other police officers have several preemptive types of injuries that are assumed to be part of the duty. But oftentimes, other than, you know, firefighters and police officers, many professions don't have that, right? It's like, well, you know, prove that you got electrocuted and you're an electrician, prove it was at work or or it's a safety issue. But again, it's, things are often put back on that individual and sadly going into covid I already knew from my experience working with hospitals and healthcare for 20 years through being a union organizer and a nurse, I knew what was going to happen. And I was pretty spot on. I mean, I went to my employer, the union I worked for, and I said, there's this disease coming. The employers are going to be terrible. We're going to lose members. And we need to figure out now how we're going to address losing members. And it's going to continue to be really bad. And right off the bat, we had nurses who were getting suspended for wearing masks. We had ER doctors buying the entire ER staff bunny suits and suiting up and the hospital saying, no, 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 you can't wear that. We're concerned about how it all looks. And this is, again, the thing we're now dealing with with safety, right, in hospitals. And again, this this does tie into patient advocacy and self-awareness and self-actualization about, you know, well, are you going to be a patient in a hospital that's just had a shooting? what is the safety precautions of the hospital you're going to be in as an employee, as a patient? These are things that the public needs to really get behind because there's such a PR machine at work in hospitals and in healthcare. How do patients even navigate that? Because so much is about what it looks like. Like you said, everyone's getting in trouble for what it might look like. People are talking on TikTok about, well, if we have less than safe staffing on our unit, like half the people call out right now in on the East coast, we're dealing with flu. Right. It's horrible. The Massive RSD. flu outbreak. And so people have to be calling out sick. They're sick. Their kids are sick. Their family members are sick. Half the unit calls out sick and you get 
for my case would be labor patients coming in, preterm patients. Hospital has to take Amtala. Mm-hmm. We're not on diversion. People just show up. They have the flu. They're sick. They go into labor. Also, that happens. And nurses want to be like, you know, you've got choices of hospitals. I need you to know I'm your nurse. I'm also the nurse of four other people. That is three times the number that I should safely be taking. What do you do when you're on the patient end of advocacy? How to navigate that? Because patients don't not ask that. Well, that's an important component in the work I do with my clients is letting them know. Like, for example, if I were in California, I would be saying, hey, here's a staffing rule. Here's, mm-hmm. you know, Title 22 and here's mm-hmm. the ratios. But in a non-ratioed state, the rest of the United States, and I would be asking the hospital, I would be asking some tough questions. I would ask them, how many patients are your nurses taking? What kind of support staff do you have? If there's a choice of hospital, right? It could be an emergent situation. Right. And then you're just sitting in a hallway or maybe you're outside in a tent. I also have learned, and many of us probably have, that it's not always the best hospital, the hospital that has the greatest PR, the hospital in the best neighborhood that has the best care, right? There's a mismatch there on perception, but is exactly to the point of care, safety. Is this a safe environment for care? What are the visiting policies? Those are some things that people don't often ask, actually. So if you have a 24-hour visitor policy, well, are you comfortable with that, you know, as a patient? How many patients, how many visitors are allowed? I worked in a hospital that was open door 24 seven. You could have hundred people. They didn't care. And there was no waiting rooms on any floors. So everybody was in the room right outside the hallway. You know, you may have somebody who has an ankle monitor. You may have somebody who's on parole probation. We often had that. We had a mixed peds med surge unit and occasionally they would forget there's peds patients on that floor and they would want to downgrade these patients and the nurses. So if the nurses didn't think and have the foresight to think, to call management and say, Hey, maybe don't put that. We got to keep this person on tally or keep mm-hmm. them over here in this other unit because we can't safely put them there. So there's a lot of things that people need to be aware of as patients and, and caregivers in these situations. The other component is also transparency because now we have billing transparency We know that a lot of hospitals are not complying. CMS, to my knowledge, is only fine two hospitals of the 4,000 that are CMS certified. So understanding billing practices is something that in advance, there's a lot of things in advance that an advocate can do that can then bring back information to the client or the family and say, here's the information we have. I asked about these 20 procedures, labs, tests that you more likely have, or you have had in the past, or are going to be recurrent depending on the disease Mm -hmm. process. And here's what they've had to say. I've called your insurance to see where they're going to pay and the match. And if there's insurance dispute. So there's a lot of research that goes into it. So I work on a retainer. Most of us do similar to a lawyer, because we know that there's going to be at least five to 10 hours of work with the assessment and then doing all the research, the background research. And then we've got to make sure that the patient has an advanced directive that we are listed as being able to receive information on their behalf. So there's some paperwork and legal components that have to be satisfied as well. First and foremost, we want to make sure that they have their medication list and that they have an advanced directive right off the bat. Those are very important and that the people that are the decision makers for them 
are equipped to be the decision makers and have that support. And that's kind of where the coaching comes in as well. And also the mediation services, because during nursing school, I had the opportunity to be a caregiver for a company that took care of the richest people in America, pretty much. What I discovered was the richest people in America, as they age, often don't have close family systems. They often are geographically quite distant from their families. Okay. They basically are in the same situation as anybody else in a skilled nursing facility. They yeah. just got more money and maybe they have a private duty nurse. I did private yeah. duty, but I was astounded at the lack of family support and infrastructure support with these mm -hmm. folks or the detachment that their children had to them. And not judging, I don't know what happened or what the story was or situation, but I was often on saying, well, where's your daughter? Where's your son? Mm -hmm. But they are making the decisions. So that again is where mediation comes in if that's desired. And if there's conflict about the care of a patient, I remember a very distinct situation where I had three wives show up and about 10 children. Some of the kids were older than the youngest wife. I don't even know who the real wife was. I don't know if any of the, any of the marriages were legitimate, right? right? But this was somebody who was in their 80s and all of a sudden family just started popping out of nowhere. You can't predict those kind of situations, but if somebody is going into deteriorating health and there are going to be family dynamics that need to be navigated, it's always best to try and do your best to navigate those in advance, whether you are one of the children, one of the stakeholders in that patient's health or in their life, or you are that patient yourself while you still have your faculties. Get your affairs in order and get your relationships in order and do what you can to get the family dynamics straightened out because it's also a learning process. None of us are getting out alive. We're all going to need this at some point. We're going to need yeah. these skills of how to make decisions, how to cope, how to have just hard discussions. Validating if, for all of the patients that are like writing their birth plans <laughs> when they come back. <laughs> so I'm part of a group called Pulse. They're in Long Island, New York. They're a nonprofit a patient advocacy organization. And we had a big initiative that we were participating in to get college students to do their advanced directives. And when you mention advanced directives to somebody's parents, or, you know, I would talk to people I know as I'm my age group, a lot of my friends have teenage or college yeah. age kids. And they're like, oh my gosh, we don't want to talk about them dying. It's so taboo in our culture. Yeah. And I said, well, and these are people not in health. And I said, well, who do you think the organ donors are? What do you think we call under 25 males who ride a motorcycle? We call them organ donors. Right. And so let's put the power in their hands. Let's put the power in the hands of that young person when they turn 18, when they're in college, because they do participate in high-risk activities, whether it involves drugs, alcohol, behavior, anything, or just being out. They're just out in society a lot. And they could have some ill effect out there. But to have those conversations at that young age is so empowering Versus like just being in denial and waiting until you're 65. Or Great conversation to have with your family when you don't need it, because when you do need it, probably the parents are going to need it first. Right. And we want our kids to have had that conversation with us. We want to have that open communication of we know what's on each other's directives. We are updating things regularly. We're talking to each other. I want my parents to be talking to me about their healthcare. One, I want to know what's in my genetics. I mean, there's mm -hmm. so many reasons to be talking to your family about healthcare. And a lot of families don't have that. They don't have the history. They don't have 
alive families to discuss that with. And I think if you do, it's a great opportunity, but difficult, like you said, very difficult. It sounds like you meet some of the folks who have a lot of privilege in our health system and need advocates. So Mm -hmm. that is validating for the families that take family members with them to healthcare appointments, to inpatient procedures, because you're following your intuition that you're going to need an advocate and to have someone kind of built in that already loves you, thinks about your perspective, asks questions on your behalf, reminds you of things, writes things down for you is crucial. It's crucial, especially for folks who are not the most privileged in our society and our healthcare systems who are receiving and experiencing those biases, those discriminations, and maybe don't have access to an advocate that they can hire. Right. And that is why there needs to be more of us. And it looks like what's happening is the insurance industry is going to start paying for us. There is some movement there. I say that with a caveat because I have that little part of me that's cynical about what's the catch going to be. Now, there are patient advocates built in. So if you're a pediatric patient, you know, kids with cancer, for example, they get a patient advocate. There are certain diagnoses that more or less come with advocacy, a little more built in. The VA has a patient advocacy program. So you might hear that term in other realms within your healthcare system. It does not mean the same thing as what I do. So I want to make sure people understand that not the same. I am not beholden to anybody, but my client, and I'm going to fight for my client's best interest. So it's like having a lawyer, almost it's somebody who's going to be on your side, who's impartial and can just deal with the family dynamics, the doctors, the providers, uh, medical equipment, billing, and be impartial about things and objective. And that's really important. And also because of my experience as a coach and my training, I'm able to bring some other therapeutic skills for forward. All of us as nurses, we all have that, you know, basic training in some way, shape or form as educators as well, but to bring those family dynamics together, to bring hard conversations to the forefront. And I would say that for people who cannot afford these kind of services, which are going to be a lot of people, is that they go to Pulse, go to find the patient advocacy organizations. National Greater Advocates is a big one. They are a directory of all patient advocates. It is all private pay at this point. So there's a big range of what people may charge. I will say it's going to be anywhere from $75 an hour to $500 an hour. I work on retainer unless somebody has a really super clear one and done kind of situation, which is rare, but I'm going to work on somewhere around a 10 hour retainer that then I'll work off of. And then we'll figure out what I anticipate or what the expectation is of the length of our relationship based on different factors at play. Um, But I do see that more of us are putting out content I'm really pushing my colleagues to put out more content on social media, more educational information. If you go to Pulse's website, they have an entire checklist. That's great. It's a downloadable. It's free. I would suggest everybody go there and download that checklist. Basically, what do you need to have before you go to the doctor? What are your medications? What is your history? What other information that you need to know? Because 
it, even for myself, I mean, I go to the doctor and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, but I had this question. I had that question, which is why concierge medicine is taking off. Why is there that need for that and that desire? And that's actually rather affordable. I've used online services mm-hmm. prescription. And I was shocked at the follow-up by this doctor. It was $35, I think online or something. And they text me back. Hey, do you have any other yeah. questions? Right. Hey, there was an issue with the prescription not going through. I text, I was kind of freaking out because in normal life, you're like, Oh my God, it's over. You have to pay again. You have to go. (laughs) Right. Like this is why people use the ER for primary care. It was no problem. It was like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Let me get this. I've had a similar experience. Yeah. And I'm relatively young, educated, relatively healthy. And now that I'm not relatively healthy, I have like pages and pages and pages and pages. I cannot assume that people know who I am and that my chart is correct. And it's often not, and it's oh, not yeah. that complicated. I haven't seen that many specialists. It's been in network. It's been with the same group. And I'm like, oh, I was just here a couple of weeks ago. I remember you. It's so scary. So mm-hmm. scary. And it is. And it's really important that everybody, I mean, one thing everybody can do, especially now that you get printouts, when you go to the physician, yeah. your provider, ask for a copy of your chart, ask for, you know, take a look at what that says. Cause it typically will have your history. So whatever mm-hmm. diagnosis that they're putting on there. And again, mm-hmm. diagnosis or money, right? Mm-hmm. The coding is money. The type of visit is money. Um, for example, where I live for a great part of my life before I moved here, I use the county health system. My provider was through the county. They moved to an EHR at some point when I was living there. And I get the printout, I look, it says depression. And I said, I don't have depression. Why would they put depression? It took me about eight hours to get through various calls and emails to somebody in their EHR. Now I was actually an informaticist at the time when this happened, I was working for my own organization as an informaticist. And so I knew exactly what it, I had a feeling what had happened. So I finally get through to somebody. I said, you know, I need to get this removed one, but I want to understand how did this get on there? And do you know what they told me? This woman very honestly said, we were working like round the clock for two weeks, converting all the patient records. This is a county facility to electronic. And we, the system required, we put a diagnosis in. So we gave everybody in the county depression. No. Yeah. They put depression on every patient's chart because they had to put a diagnosis. They had to fill in the bubble. Right. Fill in the bubble, right. To link to the money. And I was like, well, I may be going for like a security screening and that may not be good. Like, couldn't you think of something better than depression? I mean, what? seasonal allergies, right. maybe? <laughs> rhinitis. I lived in Jeez, the rhinitis, right. capital, right? <laughs> rhinitis. A red inflamed left pinky finger, anything besides that. Right. So again, and I mean, I found this with my mother. So my mother had MS actually, which I hadn't shared with you earlier, but so that was a very good teaching experience for me as a young person in healthcare. I grew up in hospitals. I grew up in healthcare with both my parents and it taught me a lot learning from them before I had any notion that I would ever become a nurse because I never wanted to become a nurse. And then one day I did. (laughs) Uh, And it just showed me so much how when you are the squeaky wheel, when you do ask questions, you know, you are going to get the best care. You just are. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you're mistreated even more but, harshly. But then you have that choice to move on. You have that choice. Yeah. to. 
And one thing that I've learned, you know, part of the coaching services I do is about also perception. It's about how do we frame ourselves, right? So, and it occurred to me, and I never really noticed this because my mother had this resilience about her with dealing with her MS that was really amazing. And she was an extremely positive person. And when I become a nurse, I would have these patients, oh, I'm diabetic. And I said, well, what if you change that instead of saying I'm diabetic? What if you just said, I'm a person who has diabetes? Does that change things for you and your mind? Does that give you empowerment? Because if you say I'm a, you know, I'm a diabetic or I'm this, you're not your disease. Right. That disease is just part of what's happening. It's going on. It's come along for a ride in your body for a while. And (laughs) maybe you can drop it off somewhere at at a train station, or maybe you're going to carry it with you the rest of your life, but you're going to manage that. And it's just a little component of who you are, but we allow, and I really believe this is an American thing because we allow healthcare marketing, we allow drug marketing, advertising. You don't see drug ads in other countries, by the way, folks. You do not see drug ads in Canada. You don't see them in Europe. People do not go to their doctors and say, hey, I saw this pill in this magazine ad and I'd like you to prescribe it for me. You don't have, we paid for the R&D, right? This is all R&D for research and development for pharmaceutical companies and or equipment companies, you know, all this stuff. So it's really important how people frame themselves within their own health, right? Like I'm asthmatic or do I have asthma? There's a difference in our identity and how we treat ourselves and how we see ourselves and how we perceive our health status and our wellness status. So that's a whole topic unto itself, but it's so important that people are empowered through that. And we just sometimes over-identify with a disease Mm -hmm. because that's a way to get attention. It's a way to get something that maybe we're not getting somewhere else in in life. Or people aren't taking it seriously or you feel like you have to center it because you're the only one that knows all about it, remembers it. You have to prioritize that. The hypervigilance, right? So it's it's the collapsing with the hypervigilance about it. And then there's like that laissez-faire, right? I mean, I worked in telemetry, so it would be those patients have dialysis and they're just like, yeah, I've gone into end stage renal failure. And you're like, this was completely preventable. You see patients and you're like, this is not, you know, but it becomes part of their life, right? And and there are some healthcare situations and illnesses that do require a lot of care. And really people who do the best, I believe, are people who really frame it as this is part of them, but it's not their life. Maybe for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Hoping you're dealing with something new. Um, I've had horrendous injuries. I mean, I basically got injured out of nursing. I just couldn't continue. I couldn't at my age, take another injury. Mm-hmm. I feel like we come out of nursing, like we're linebackers or something in the NFL. A friend was just talking to me about a patient she had. I'm like, my shoulders can't hear any more of this story. I'm already hurting. Just imagining being there. Chronic pain. Right. We live with always pain. in pain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just started doing Pilates, which has been amazing. I highly recommend Pilates for anybody, but yeah, I mean, I've spent most of my career as a nurse I had three major injuries. I think I was probably out a total of at least two years, several years of, of, you know, physical therapy and continuing to take care of myself. And I'm very diligent about that, but yeah, self-care is really important as a healthcare worker and as a human being. I mean, we have to take responsibility for our bodies and our health and our wellness and how we frame is this life in alignment with the life I want to live right? Is being a nurse, it's great. 12 hour shifts. You get four days off. I can pick up all the overtime I want. 
you know, I have time off to travel, but then, well, if I'm too sore to travel and we all know about that one day of recovery you need where you're just a yep. vegetable and oh. don't anybody talk to you. You become the couch. You become the couch and, you know, only cats allowed, no humans allowed. Cats and cookies. That's it. Yeah. And it's about living that life that's aligned with what our vision, our goals are and creating that. And through the advocacy work that also allows people that opportunity for people who are the caregiver, I'm selling back their time for that person, you know, because I realized through my mom in my career field prior to being a nurse that I had spent so much time taking care of my mom and flying back home that it had really impeded my career advancement. And if I could have gone, you know, paid somebody to help me navigate some of those moments where I didn't panic and have to leave and get on a plane, or I would have maybe been able to live a little farther away, take on a greater responsibility in my organization, that would have made a huge difference in my life now. But we've got this sandwich generation right now that's really, the sandwich is getting thicker and thicker. People are being caregivers for their, almost their whole adult life, older parents or grandparents, their kids. I mean, I have a friend who's 74 taking care of her 102 year old mom. So really her entire retirement has been that caregiving. Mm-hmm. And how do we navigate that and take care of our own health? Because then, you know, we're all going to have health issues at some or deal with the healthcare system at some point ourselves. Right. Yeah. That's an important, I think for nurses as well, that we are, we are the human and then we're also a nurse. We're not Labor nurses are so married. This may be unique about labor nurses. I think it's unique about ED and ER or ICU nurses sometimes, sometimes oncology, where they're like, no, but this is who I am. And it's really hard. Like I still say I'm a labor and delivery nurse. It is who I am. I don't work at the bedside, but it is infused in everything that I do. It is incorporated. It is related. Everything I learned there is used in every aspect of my work and every aspect of my work is infused with the fact that I'm also a nurse, but I'm not nurse Mandy. I am Mandy and I'm also a nurse. And I think that, I think it's important for nurses to continue to hear it. And I think our audience likes to hear it We give you permission to expand in whatever city you need to, in order to be whole and healthy (laughs) and human first. And I love learning about this work, Adrian. I'm so excited. Every time I have a guest just like this, I'm like, I have to tell all my friends, you can do this too. You don't have to be mistreated. (laughs) And and honestly, any nurse can pass the exam. Let me just tell you, the exam is basically some common, if you're already in healthcare, it's a lot of common sense things that we already know in healthcare ethics, a lot of ethics questions. I went ahead and did the mediation arbitration training. Those programs are available. And if people want to message me, they I'll let them know where I did the program and it's very affordable. And it's about taking that risk and envisioning something greater for ourselves of what are we going to be? Because we get so much into the do, 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 do. And it's about being, if I'm being something, it's reverse engineering what we want. And it starts with a beingness, not with doing this. We think if I do this, do this, I'll be this. No, we have to be first. I have to be courageous. And then from courage, act. That's really hard. (laughs) But it's possible. It is so challenging because we're just Mm -hmm. wired. So we get to, you know, like I like to say, this season of, of autumn and fall is a season of shedding, a season of change. And where do we get to soften? Where do we get to, what am I going to release? Because there's no way, and I want to make this really clear to anybody, no matter what you're doing, if you're listening to this, 
when you're reverse engineering your vision and your goals in your life, there is no way you're going to just get there without having some release. You're going to be letting go of people. You're going to let go of ideas about yourself. You're going to be letting go of who you are, maybe your identity in part. And that takes courage and a level of bravery and boldness that may seem overwhelming, but it's just one step leads to the next. That is hard. It's hard, but it's good to hear. And thank you for the reminder. And thank you for sharing your story. This is so exciting that you've done so many things in and around nursing and you were a nurse later in life. And it's inspiring to hear your story and hear how you are still an advocate and doing it out of the healthcare system. Thank you. Do you work for yourself? So yeah, I work for myself. So I have my own business and I did give myself some time off like many nurses and, and I miss my patients. Let me tell you, I want to say I do miss bedside. There is a component of being with those patients. I do miss, but you know, I had to figure out what could I do that was going to reach more people and have the impact and be aligned with the life I want to live right now. It's fitting into what's the life you want to have. What's the life you're going to create and what works for that and be courageous about that and think outside the box. Because if I didn't hear about this certification process and I literally don't even remember how I heard about it. And I thought, that's me. That's what I'm (laughs) going to do. And I didn't know how long it would take. And of course COVID happened. So again, this is a long game. This was 2019. I got certified. I'm really just launching the business fully now, but it's been in the process and I've been doing the work along the way. So think long game. It's okay. It took me a while to figure out I needed to take a year off. I knew I was going to take a gap, like a gap year, a sabbatical year because I could not do it all. Right. That's the Mm -hmm. other thing. You hear nurses, oh, I work three jobs. I'm getting my master's degree, my yeah. PhD, nurse practitioner, and I have five kids and I go to all the baseball games and this and that, blah, 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 right? I'm nursing because three of them and I, one's in college. It's like, what? No. no, take the time and figure it out. And I put the time on the front end. I knew I was going to take some time off. I didn't know it would be a year. And it's been a beautiful experience for me at this point in my life. And I highly encourage people to take time off. We just don't give ourselves that gift of time and grace. Because we cannot soften ourselves under that pressure cooker. We can be beaten down, but we are not going to soften ourselves from within under that pressure cooker of all the burdens that we choose that we put on ourselves in our lives. And so I really, you know, my best words to anybody is really practice self-forgiveness, self-awareness, and where can I soften and what can I let go of and what's, and really be real, be honest, what's Mm -hmm. it going to take? to live the life I want to live. It, it could mean a lot of big things, but trust me, when we create that space, the possibility so much comes in because possibility can be knocking on our door, but it will not, it will not enter if there's a bunch of garbage in there. We can't even hear it. Busy. <laughs> we don't really have the space. We can't because some things just are, are not going to live in that space of like, being added on and added on chaos. Right, right, right. On this episode of therapy with nurse Adrian, (laughs) I love it. Thank you so much, Adrian. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Thanks for joining us today. We wanted to leave you with a quick stat and something to think about until we see you next time. According to a 2018 report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the prevalence of sexual harassment in academic medicine is almost double that of other science and engineering specialties. 
This presents a serious danger that ripples into patient safety, clinical outcomes, and burnout, which leads to costly loss of talent. How much safer could medicine be if nurses and physicians weren't also battling sexual harassment day in and day out? If you or anyone you know has a story to share, please contact us on Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast. We'd love to share your story.